Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be back in town and to be with you, to worship with you, and to get into God's Word together. We drove about 6,000 miles on our trip this past few weeks, and I got to meet all sorts of interesting people and spend time with friends and relatives, and I love going on vacation, but I love coming home. And it really is a good thing to see you again. I'm struck every time I leave when I go and, and see other believers in other places and, and meet unbelievers in other places. And, but I, I come back always more thankful for Grace Orange than when I left. I love this fellowship. And the other thing I'm, I'm struck by is how blessed we are as a body uh, to have such gifted preachers and teachers in our midst and our elders and our pastors and this last couple of weeks represented by Brian Zuniga and Tom Licata and got to listen to both of those messages and was encouraged and, and blessed by both and we are just so blessed we want to be a blessing as a church and uh, today we're going to be in a passage where there's preaching going on so I'm preaching a, on a sermon I'm preaching a sermon on the very first sermon that was preached in the very first church. And it's my favorite sermon in the whole Bible. I told the other two hours, don't tell Jesus. Because I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. When I was preaching through Matthew, I love the Sermon on the Mount. And I said at the time that that's the best sermon in the world, the greatest sermon in the world by the greatest preacher in the world. And that is absolutely true. But this, in... in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost is my favorite sermon in the whole Bible. And I have a few reasons for it, and one is very personal, which I'll, I'll share with you later. But I want you to know that this passage of Scripture that we come to today, we're going to look at a lot of verses, okay? Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. A lot of verses. This sermon is absolutely foundational to life in Christ and life in the body of Christ. And I believe with all my heart that this passage of Scripture ought to absolutely impact your life at the deepest part of your heart. And I'm also convinced that it should not just impact your heart at its deepest point, but that your life, practically outlived, would, would be changed because of the message in this passage. And of course you would say that about everything we would preach from the Word of God, right? But especially this, it should affect you from the inside out. This is so foundational. This, this, this sermon that Peter stands up and, and, and preaches. I mean, think about this. What if you had, let's just say you had three minutes to say anything you wanted to a, a big group of people. They said to you, you have the floor, you have three minutes, you say whatever you want to this group of, let's say, three to 5,000 people. What would you say? What, what would you bring out? What would be so important to you in that three minutes that that would be the thing that you would focus on in your moment of opportunity? Now, the passage I'm going to read, the, the sermon part of it, you can read it in like three minutes. To be fair, this is not a three-minute sermon. And by the way, you're not off the hook. This will not be a three-minute sermon today. I'm taking the full time allotted and maybe a bit more. 
But this is a summary. We're going to read about this. This is a summary of the sermon he preached. We're also going to read that with many other words, Peter exhorted the people to be right with God. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see what Peter did. We're going to see why he did it. And we're also going to see what it tells us about our interactions with those who don't know Christ. How our preaching should go. And, and, that's, and, and that's preaching in small groups, one-on-one, with, with neighbors, with friends, with co-workers, with relatives. Or it might be preaching to large groups in public. But I want you to stand with me. We're going to read about it here. We're going to read verses 14 through 41 of Acts chapter 2. And before I read it, let me just say that the the very first thing I want every one of us to do is to just simply listen to this message. And I know you're you're standing and you're going to listen to the word, but I want you to really listen intently and, and see how God affects your heart with this message you know it really it's it's listen to it and respond we don't want to come to the word and and just say wow that that's cool or i read it before or whatever but listen and respond and if you're a believer and you align with the message that that we're reading here and you believe in jesus as as lord and savior then pray that in your gospel preaching again in in small groups and large but as you share the gospel with other people that god would would incorporate some of the elements that Peter uses in his sermon and that he would transform your sharing of the gospel message. Because I think all of us who are believers would say, for this I was born, for this I was born to share the gospel message to to as many people uh, that God places in my path. All right, let's read, and then I'll pray, and then you'll be able to sit down. If you get tired while I'm reading, go ahead and sit down. Um, but Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14, this is God's word. Okay, I, I like to say this is the only perfect part of the service because God's word is perfect. Even if I mispronounce words, if I say it and stumble over words, God's word is perfect and the Holy Spirit will use the word in your life. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it for David says concerning him I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption you have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence brothers I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation and so those who were received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls this is the word of God and Lord God we thank you for your word we thank you that by your spirit you use your word in our, in our hearts and our lives and we thank you for the day of Pentecost and we thank you for this sermon that Peter preached. Lord, we pray that you would, would sink the truth of this sermon down deep into our hearts, that we would be changed and that you would, would work it out through our lives in fruitful 
effective ministry in our homes, in, in our neighborhoods, and in the world. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This sermon that Peter preached is, is universe-altering. Yes, it's the first sermon preached in the first church, and, and yes, it did set the tone for the apostolic preaching. In fact, the other apostolic sermons in the book of Acts follow the pattern that we will see that Peter preached. I've told you that the book of Acts is the story of Christ's work continuing, that it's his work through his witnesses for his sovereign purposes, his will. And I told you that there's five main themes running through the book. First and foremost, the risen and returning Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Holy Spirit. Third, the the authoritative word of God, the all-sufficient word of God. Fourth, the the chosen witnesses of of Christ, and and then God's sovereign purposes being unfolded. And we see these things all the way through the book, and and the Lord Jesus, the risen and returning Lord Jesus, is front and center, and the Holy Spirit is, is huge in the book of Acts, and it's based upon the word of God and God using his chosen witnesses for his purposes. And I've told you that Acts is foundational history, that it's, it's the, the bridge, really, between the Old and the New Covenant and the, the transition, the bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. It's the narrative history of the first 30 years of the church. And the day of Pentecost is extremely foundational. The sermon that Peter preached on that day is extremely significant. That's what we're looking at today, and, and it, it builds upon what has come before in chapter one we saw the overlap from the gospels to to the book of acts where the ascension happens and jesus commissions his disciples and he tells them don't leave jerusalem wait for the promise of the father and what you see them doing is actively waiting in the upper room praying and fellowshipping with unity they're they're digging into the word of god they're seeking the will of god and you see them choosing a, a replacement for Judas because Peter says, hey, in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, it says this, we need to do this. So they're digging into the word and Peter's bringing this up and, and then they're, they're there and you've got now 12 apostles and the day of Pentecost arrives and you get into chapter two and there's this sonic boom from heaven, basically, a loud noise and everyone comes running in and and the people from all over the, the world are hearing in their own languages, real languages, they're hearing the apostles, these Galileans who didn't know the languages, they're hearing them speak of the mighty deeds of God. And there's amazement going on, there's perplexity, they're asking each other, what does this mean? But there's also some sinful mocking going on. And they're, they're accused of something. They're accused of being drunk at nine in the morning. And they're, they say they're full of sweet wine. It's an absurd charge, really. They say they're, they're drunk on grape juice, basically. Unfermented grape juice. They're, they're, they're full of that. They can't handle that. And they're just out of their minds. And what, what is really going on 
is, is how Peter is going to start this sermon by basically saying, you guys are wrong. Here's the truth about it. And he's going to use the word of God. This is an expositional sermon. He's taking Old Testament passages and he's explaining them in light of the gospel. In fact, he's bringing the gospel out of these Old Testament passages. So the people's responses and reactions were mixed and Peter is, is preaching because God is using him to say something. And I guess the, th- the first thing I want to point out about this sermon is, is the preacher. I want you to notice the preacher. You, you know it's Peter. But I guess the question that comes to my mind is, what is up with this guy? Who is this guy? Six weeks earlier, he was cowardly. Six weeks earlier, he wanted to throw in the towel and quit. And now there's this intensity, there's this urgency to the message that he stands up and preaches. What is up? Verse 14 tells us that Peter, after the comments are made, okay, people are wondering what's going on, and they're amazed and perplexed, but then the people are mocking and saying they're filled with new wine, and Peter stands up with the 11. So you've got 12 apostles up there, and it's striking to me that you don't see them saying, are you going to do it, or are you going to do it? Who's going to go up there and say something? Peter just gets up and does it. No one says, you know, the last person with their thumb up has to preach. It's basically Peter and the 11 are saying, go for it, Peter. There's no jockeying for position. There's no saying, hey, I I think that should be me, or I wish that was me. Basically, Peter is recognized as the person that should be preaching. And he stands up, and the way he stands up, standing up with the 11, it's bold and it's authoritative. He is courageous, He is focused. He is intense. It's a spirit-inspired sermon that he's preaching, and and it's so different than pre-Pentecost Peter, who was that coward. See, Pentecost Peter is a courageous proclaimer of the gospel. He's a, a new man, formerly weak and impulsive. Now, here in Acts 2, verse 14, he's strong. He's persuasive. The day of Pentecost, it was monumental. It was the day of first fruits, and here the church was being birthed, and Peter takes the opportunity before him and goes for it. He takes his stand. He says, he says to the whole crowd, he lifts up his voice, he's talking so they can hear, and he addresses them. And he says, he says this, he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So everybody that can hear my words, you need to listen up. Why, why would he do this? Why would Peter do such a thing? And the reason why is because as, as we read in, in this passage, he's calling for repentance based upon the gospel message. Peter had repented. Peter repented of his sins. He was a repenter. He, he was living a lifestyle of repentance. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea that coming to faith in Christ then means that your sin problem is just completely you know non-existent in your life anymore you would laugh at that right because we are as if, if you're a believer you are living every day with with your sins in view in fact your sins seem worse to you now than before you were a believer because now you have the holy spirit and now you're convicted of sin and now it matters so peter repented first corinthians 5 15 tells us uh, 15 5 tells us that jesus appeared to peter 
After Jesus had risen from the dead, he had a session with Peter. And I can imagine in the presence of the resurrected Christ, his foolishness, Peter's foolishness was exposed. His sin was exposed. Six weeks later, on Pentecost, he's this changed man. That's hope for any of you that have lost hope of changing. You say, well, I've been a believer for a while, and I I get in the Word, and I pray, and I'm in a, a group with people, and I just don't see change in my life. But there's hope for God to change your heart and for there to be fruit evident of that change. Peter is bold on the day of Pentecost. No longer a coward. He is spirit-filled. He is confident. He is focused. He's engaged. He's locked in. And there is an urgency about his message. It was a life-or-death proposition for him. It reminds me of what the Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said reflecting on the urgency and and centrality of preaching in the church he says I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men because he had a sense of gospel gravity uh, that gripped his soul this is what Peter had you know that that Bible believing gospel preaching Jesus loving churches are pretty much the only groups that gather a group every week and someone stands up and preaches the word. It's absurdity to, to the world. It's the foolishness of the message being preached. And here, Peter takes his stand. The, the church is, is getting jump-started, and what do they do first? Have a meeting? Talk about you know, plans of how they're going to reach out and do the Great Commission? Maybe have a, 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 a strategy session? No. He gets up and he preaches. He preaches the gospel of the grace of God in Christ very clearly, very strongly, very persuasively because eternity was hanging in the balance as he proclaimed the word. By the way, this is the first of 15 sermons Luke records in the book of Acts. There are 14 more sermons in this book. There are seven more by Peter. There are, there are five by Paul. There is one by Stephen that got him killed. And there is one by James. There are also four defense speeches by Paul. And yeah, this is, if you read it through, it's a short sermon. You can read it in three minutes, but... It's a summary because with many other words, he pled with them. He's telling them, be reconciled to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He says, God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Savior. He's God. The whole message of the sermon is, Jesus is God and you need to believe in him. It's the best message he could give. It's what you would do with that three minutes if you got it. What was his Pentecostal preaching comprised of? There's four things. You might want to write this down. Four things we see in this passage. Number one, he first straightens out their thinking by explaining Pentecost. He explains Pentecost. So he's using the word of God to explain the phenomena that they had seen and heard. So he explains Pentecost, number one. Number two, he exalts Christ. Verses 22 to 36 is the meat of the sermon, and it's all about Jesus. And he leaves nothing out. You've got the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the present ministry, 
and, and the return of Christ all in this sermon. Peter exalts Christ. That's the second thing he does in this sermon. Basically, once he gets the roadblocks out of the way with this sinful objection, he preaches Christ. And in the, in, in the, in the process, he does a third thing. He exposes sin. He exposes sin. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that is just what is happening here. These 3,000 hearts were, were stabbed. That's literally what it means. They're pierced to the heart. They're under the Holy Spirit's conviction when they hear this message. You'll notice something interesting about the apostolic preaching. They would wait until the people told them how the message affected them to give them what they should do. That's why this group says, what should we do? And he tells them, you need to repent. So Peter explains Pentecost, number one. Number two, he exalts Christ. Number three, he exposes sin. And number four, what we see him doing is exhorting the crowds. He's not shy about it. He's not afraid to expose their sin and their guilt. And he is not afraid to tell them to repent and be baptized. He's not afraid to tell them that they need to believe in Jesus. Excuse me. Believe in Jesus and then publicly show it. By the way, the cost to them, they were writing their death warrant. It's interesting. If you're, not a, if you're not baptized and you're a believer, you're disobedient. And there's no cost to you besides getting um, soaked in front of a group of people. But the cost to them, their obedience would cost them their life because they were saying, our old life, we, we made a break with our old life, now we are fully in line with Jesus Christ who is being preached that we just heard. And it would be as if they were writing their death warrant. And by the way, this sermon, the way God set it up was probably the biggest alley-oop in gospel uh, preaching history besides Acts chapter 8 where Philip uh, comes upon an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah 53. I mean, what an assist from God. But God had gotten the attention of the crowds. He had arrested their hearts. He, and so what Peter does, as, as people are, are absorbing, having heard the mighty deeds of God in their own language, now Peter stands up boldly, authoritatively, and preaches the gospel in one common language. And they're hearing it. And, and he, he explains what happened to Pentecost, He dives into the meat of the message, exalts Christ, magnifies Jesus, and this sermon becomes the blueprint, the model for the apostolic preaching. All the rest of the preaching in Acts follows this model. Preaches the the life, death, burial, resurrection, present ministry, and return of Christ. But he didn't stop there. He exposed their sin. He wasn't afraid to expose their sin, and then those that positively responded, he exhorts them to repent and believe in Jesus. He's, asked, he's answering questions and objections, both sincere and sinful. So you've got the sinful mocking objection. They are full of sweet wine. They can't handle their grape juice. They're out of their minds. Really a ridiculous statement. And then the sincere heart-level question, what shall we do? So let's look first at Pentecost being explained. Still in verse 14 here, okay? He says, men of Judea and all who are in Jerusalem, listen in. These people, verse 15, are not drunk. Basically, no one gets drunk at nine in the morning, he says. 
It was, it was the day of Pentecost. And the Jews were to abstain from eating till noon. They weren't eating and drinking till noon. It's nine in the morning. The third hour of the day was nine in the morning. This is the hour of the morning sacrifice. That sacrifice would be, would be made and then the first of three set hours of prayer would start. And the Jews had a saying that no one could taste or drink anything until he had prayed this prayer. What Peter says is, you guys are all wrong, and here is what it really is. This is what we're talking about. Verse 16, he takes him to Joel chapter 2. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, he says, in that word, this is a word-driven sermon, by the way. He's taking an Old Testament passage, and he's showing them what God said he would do and how it was fulfilled. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, remember what the resurrected Jesus had done with the apostles? He had opened their minds to the scriptures. He had explained to them all the things concerning him in the scriptures. I'm sure he went to Joel too because Peter had this. Peter had been studying the word. Just like he pointed out that Judas needed to be replaced based on scripture, now he explains the phenomena that everybody had seen and heard. And his words were like well-driven nails. They were just right on point. He's quoting Joel too. And he says, verse 17, in the last days, what are the last days? Last days are all the days between the first coming of Christ, the incarnation, and the second coming of Christ. The first and second advent of Christ. All the days in between are the last days. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. He says it twice. And then in verse 21, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You cry out to God in prayer to forgive you of your sins, to, to, to change you, it will happen. You will be rescued from sin's power and penalty. Peter is, is highlighting the need of the people for a savior. He's basically saying, as he gets into the meat of the message, uh, verses 22 to 36, this is Jesus, salvation is here. It's like he's crying out loud and clear, Jesus is God, you need to believe in him, he's the only savior. So verse 22, he addresses them again, men of Israel, hear these words. He's like, you know, Charles Stanley, listen, right? You hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He is dropping the pin right in the geographic location where Jesus was known to have been from. He says, this is who we're talking about. A person named Jesus from Nazareth. Pinpoints it. A man attested to you by God, many signs and wonders, and God proved it through these miracles. And he says, this Jesus, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up now he's talking about the death of Christ. He had just talked about the life of Christ. Mighty works, wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's not talking to people like us who have read the Gospels. He's talking to people who saw the Gospels. And Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You want to blow somebody's mind? Tell them that God planned Jesus' death. Tell them that God planned Jesus' murder. You want to blow minds? Do that. You want to get shocked looks of disbelief? Tell people that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's exactly what Peter is preaching. And it's the exact truth. He said it was by the predetermined plan of God that God set that in motion. That it was his purpose for Jesus to die, that God designed 
the death of Christ, that he ordained the death of Christ. And not only that, but it was by his foreknowledge, which doesn't mean that he looked down the corridors of time and saw what people would do, but that he did it as his own act by means of his sovereign plan that he delivered up Jesus by his foreknowledge. He foreordained it. It was an eternal decision. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. There was no indecision in this predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was an eternal decree that Jesus would die. So Christ's death is God's plan. Purpose by decree. That's what he told him. In verse 24, he says, but God raised him up. He couldn't be held by death. And then verse 25, he says, you know, we're going to go to Psalm 16 now, verses 8 through 11, and I'm going to show you what David said about Jesus. David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. How do we know this? Because Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. You won't abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption and you've made me see the path of life and you give me gladness with your presence. So Peter is preaching that the Messiah has come and that Jesus is the Messiah the one that was crucified. In verse 29, he addresses them again. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about David that he died and was buried, and you can walk to his grave and see his bones if you'd like. They're in Jerusalem. David was buried in Jerusalem. They could go see David's tomb. If they wanted to, they could open it up and see the bones where a body used to be. He says, we're talking about Jesus here. There's no way in the world anyone would think it was David. Verse 32, this Jesus. He keeps saying this. I love it. This Jesus. Several times he repeats it. It's this Jesus, this specific Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. God raised him up, and he says, of that we are all witnesses. We're talking about preaching that comes from an eyewitness of the resurrection. That's some strong connect, connectivity there to what God did at a certain point in time in history. Then verse 33, the present ministry of Jesus. Yet the resurrection is so huge in this sermon. And then he says in verse 33, now he's exalted at the right hand of God. Remember, they had just seen him go. And it says that he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus poured out what they saw and heard. So you want more proof that Jesus is God? God said in Joel 2, I'm going to pour out my Spirit. He said it twice. And now we hear under the Holy Spirit's inspiration that Jesus poured out the Spirit. You know, when you preach Christ. When you preach the cross and Christ is exalted, something happens. 
I think sometimes we think that if we just say it just right, if we're able to just do the perfect evangelistic appeal or the perfect sermon or the perfect gospel presentation that everything's going to work out perfectly and we forget that it's the Holy Spirit using the Word of God, using the gospel to pierce people's hearts. That should give us a lot of comfort. The pressure's off us. We're the messengers. We're the ambassadors. We're not the movers of hearts. What you see when you exalt Christ is that sin is exposed. Peter exalts Christ, and he's not afraid to expose the people's sins. He basically says, God did it. God planned out Jesus' death. Oh, and by the way, you crucified him. You're guilty. You're responsible. You're accountable to God. You're not getting off the hook. Here you see the sovereignty of God and salvation. He's the determiner of salvation and the freedom of man. Hand in hand, holding hands, having no argument. You see it over and over, over and over in Scripture. He said this. He goes, you crucified Jesus. You put him to death. So you're guilty. You're under the wrath of God. You're under his judgment. You're not getting forgiveness here. And you see the heart response. All these people, they come to Peter and the 11. They come to the 12 apostles, and they basically cry out, what do we do? <laughs> Tell us what we need to do. They're under the Holy Spirit's conviction. They're convicted of their sins. They know they're toast if they don't get something, and they want to know what to do. Have you been there? Have you been convicted of your sins? Have you felt the piercing pain of knowing that without without an answer from God you're done if you haven't been through that you haven't been saved if you haven't been convicted of your sins and wondered what am I supposed to do you haven't been born again in fact they said what should we do and Peter's answer the most merciful words ever spoken. Repent. Repent. A lot of people misunderstand repentance. A lot of Christians, sadly, misunderstand repentance. They say, well, whoa, you can't just say repent and believe. You've got to just say believe. Well, no, every time the gospel is preached, and if it just says repent, it means believe. And if it says believe, it means repent. And a lot of times it says repent and believe. Because they go hand in hand. They can't be separated. You can't believe without repentance. You can't believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved without repenting of your sins. Here's what repentance is. It is a change of your mind and a change of your purpose that turns you from sin to God. It's not just your fear of eternal punishment or the consequences of your sin. You're saying this. My sin must be rejected and Jesus must be accepted. You don't carry your sin into a relationship with God in a suitcase. You don't say, hey God, you know, I want Jesus and stuff and I want to be saved, but can I bring this with me? It's not happening. True repentance brings about true conversion. And you see this all the way through the book of Acts, the preaching from the apostles. Chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, uh, chapter 8, 11, 17, 20, 26. You see it in Matthew 4 when Jesus preaches Repentance. And 3,000 hearts pierced to the point of crying out, 
what do we do? Repent. We're going to look at it in more detail next week about repentance and what the connection is with baptism there. It's key that it's in the name of Jesus Christ. It's key that there is forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. And it's key that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit like we talked about in previous weeks where the baptism of the Spirit comes at the point of salvation, at conversion. Nothing is said here about them speaking in tongues, by the way. And notice who's included in this. Verse 39 The promise is for you. What merciful words, what gracious words. You you want to know what to do? You're under the Holy Spirit's conviction. You're, 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 You're pierced to the heart and you know you're lost. Here's what you do. You repent. You believe in the Lord Jesus. And it's not just for you. It's for you and your children and all who are far off. It's for Jew and Gentile and any age that can understand the gospel message. How young you are, how old you are. It's an age-integrated gospel to all whom the Lord will draw and call to himself, Peter preaches. In verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Don't go down with the ship. We'll look more in detail at their response next week but I want to say a few things about its implications upon our life Peter preached by explaining the word of God by exalting Christ by exposing sin and by exhorting them to repentance he had a conviction that that the scriptures were authoritative that's why he explained Pentecost with God's word If you have a conviction that the scriptures are authoritative, that means you're going to bring them into every app, absolutely every part of your life. Let's just say you count up all the things that you could make a list of that are bearing upon your heart, uh, weighing you down, burdening you. Do not think that the word of God doesn't speak to those things because they're not specifically mentioned. We have one Bible with one message, with one Savior that's completely true and authoritative and this makes sense. This book, this book makes sense of all your life. And it hits every culture, every time frame till Jesus comes back. Our God is so great. I'm big on households getting into the Word together. And the reason why we even have a tear-off thing in the bulletin that says, get in the Word with your household is because you can't wait till Sunday. You can't eat once a week. Every believer should be getting into the Word with those they live with and praying together and, and doing what Christians do. If you believe that the Scriptures are authoritative, you're going to explain life by the Scriptures. You're going to allow the Scriptures to explain life and make sense of life. When I was on this last road trip, this last few weeks, I had the opportunity one day to drive from Knoxville, Tennessee, all the way to New Jersey. We were going to the Grace Brethren annual um, conference that was billed as New York, but they took us to New Jersey, cheaper, and I was going to have 12 hours. Now, when I became a believer, I started reading through the Bible, start in Genesis, go all the way to Revelation. When I finished Revelation, the same day I would start Genesis. It just so happened at that particular day, a couple weeks ago, I was in Second Chronicles. And I thought to myself, what better thing to do 
on my 12-hour alone trip in the car, but to listen to the word of God. And by God's grace, I got to listen to 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Esther, uh, Esther, Nehemiah, Job, half of Psalms. And I'm telling you the truth. It was the second up there. There's two days this year that have been my favorite days. June 26th when we had our elder day of prayer. And then whatever day that was that I was driving to New Jersey when I got into the word for 12 hours. And I can't tell you what God did in my heart when I was driving and hearing the word but I can tell you that I am convinced that I was a different man that landed in, in New Jersey that, le- that had left 12 hours before Knoxville. Because the Holy Spirit uses the word of God in our lives to change us. Rearrange things in our hearts. So you gotta have an unswerving commitment to the scriptures and explain them and be affected by them. Um, well, let me just talk about exposing sin. Peter uh, no, let's talk about exalting Christ just for a moment. Um, the sovereignty of God and salvation is huge. And so Peter exalted Christ because he believed that Jesus had been delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And he believed that those who repented, all who, who, who God calls to himself would be saved. And because of that, he exalted Christ. I think it's very easy for us to not bring Jesus into the conversation because we're afraid. Our problem is not we are too bold with the gospel message, but we are too timid with the gospel message. American Christians in particular are just too timid with the gospel message, and we're afraid, and so we say far less than what God wants us to say. You want to bring Jesus into the conversation, think about the debates that happened last week. Everyone's talking about politics right now. So tomorrow with your coworkers or some of your neighbors, talk about the debates. Ask them what they thought about the God question at the end that seemed a little bit mocking. Well, they said, did God give you a word about how you're going to be president or whatever? And I loved what two of the debaters said. One stood up in front of basically the whole world and said, God speaks to me every day through his word. And I was high-fiving the TV. Another one stood up and said, my relationship with God is based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not many people will stand up in front of the whole world and say that today because of what they might lose. Do you know that we don't lose very much when we say those things? The apostles, again, were writing their death warrants. A political candidate might be writing his trip back home. What do we have to lose? Being bold and and exalting Christ. Here's an interesting thought. You might be in a men's group or a women's group of Christians and you guys don't get into the word or pray because you've gone so long not doing that that you just talk about sports or politics or other things. You might be in a home group. You might never get in the word with your family. All I can tell you is dive into the pool. If you're with believers, do what believers do and get into the word and pray together. And praise God. 